Welcome to the Classical Voice Training Podcast, the home of tips, tricks, and techniques. I'm James Platt, and I'll be your guide to the weird and wonderful world of classical voice. Join me every Tuesday for interviews, exercises, training tips, and much, much more. Welcome, Chris, to uh, Talking Voice. It's our, what are we on now, our fourth podcast. Chris has been one of my closest friends, and we've known each other a very long time. Welcome, Chris. Thank you, James. Great to be here. Greetings from Berlin to all of you. Pleasure to have you here, Chris. So, let's start. Tell us about your job. What is your job at the moment? Okay, my job at the moment is Studienleiter at the Deutsche Oper Berlin. So, Berlin, as you know, from quirks of history, has three opera houses. I'm based in the West, in Charlottenburg. Um, and uh, Studienleiter, you can translate as head of music, head of music staff, uh, chief pianist. Um, so it really encompasses all those roles, really. Lots uh, of I, jobs. Yeah, lots of jobs. I came over to Germany in 2014. Mm-hmm. Um, and then about halfway through 2016, um, we rearranged the department slightly, and they uh, they gave me the sort of half leg up into Studienleiter, and then because of the nature of the job, as you've already alluded to with many aspects, you can't really have two people doing the job. So I was sort of um, associate Studienleiter for about six weeks, and then they uh, moved me up to Studienleiter, so to speak. I'm quite right, too. Chris is a very, <laughs> very talented man. So before we get on to um, the role of the repetitor and your roles at the Deutsche Oper, tell us a bit mm-hmm. about wh- where did you train? Yes, well, I was at the uh, Royal Academy of Music for a very long time. I, I first set foot in that building when I was 14. Um, That's because I grew up in London and I was able to come on Saturday to the uh, um, Saturday school. The junior school, Academy. absolutely, That's yeah. Right, exactly. Um, then <clears throat> that really opened my eyes already, my horizons, you know, and uh, I decided to stay. I decided not to go to university, but do the undergraduate piano course. Um, one thing led to another, I ended up doing a master's and a PhD there as well. Um, the tremendous thing about the academy in those days was that it had amazing flexibility. Um, so you could really take advantage as a musician, more or less as the, uh, as the interest or the whim took you. So I did conducting, I did musicology, um, I did a lot of accompanying, um, and I worked for the opera department effectively. So I wasn't an opera student as such, but I was able to... Um, basically play and play and play, coachings, voice lessons, staging rehearsals. I was able to conduct a little bit, um, be conducted a lot, uh, which was very interesting for my later work, um, whilst doing the PhD. Um, so, I mean, I know you'd second this, James. It's, it's, it was a tremendous place at that time uh, to spread your wings and to be as, inter- yeah, to be as yeah. interested as you possibly could be in, in all things musical. I think that, that Chris and I overlapped for quite a long time. We had a fabulous, fabulous time there, didn't we? Oh, we did. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so tell me about uh, languages as well, because if memory serves, you carried on your language training whilst at the academy as well, didn't you? Yeah, I did. That was something that they offered um, in a very unusual way, really. When I was an undergraduate, so this is going back now to 2003, um, you could technically, I believe, do any module of any subject across the whole University of London. So if you wanted to do particle physics, you could do particle physics at Imperial and it would count to your 
uh, final degree. So I was very interested in the German language, German culture, German art. Obviously, it has a central place in, in what we do. Um, so I wanted to go as far as I possibly could with the language. So I found myself in a postgrad German class when I was um, a second year undergrad. So that was, um, that was rigorous, to say the least. Yeah, and stood you in very good stead for what you would do later on. Couldn't agree more, absolutely. So take me through a, a normal week for you at the Deutsche Oper. What does it involve? Oh, okay. Well, um, at the beginning of the week, uh, we may have a, a sit-down meeting with all of the revival directors, <clears throat> the heads of the various departments, like the orchestra and the chorus, uh, chaired by the opera director. Um, and then we'll go through in really quite a lot of detail each rehearsal, what's needed, where it's going to be, um, where the possible clashes are in terms of uh, in terms of overstaying your welcome in terms of rehearsal time. Um, mm. In an ensemble house, that can be really complicated. We, I'll get onto that later, I think. We'll talk um, about it, absolutely. Absolutely. So that's the beginning of the day. Um, I will already have sketched out that morning or maybe the night before what the day after will look like. So a big part of my day-to-day -day daily grind, if you like, is... Uh, to write the rehearsal schedule for the next day. Those of you who work in England or in the UK may be used to weekly schedules, but we simply, there's too many moving parts. In an, in an average week, obviously this year has been far from average, but- uh, So how many average, productions, yeah, would you be scheduling in an average week? Um, it's, just, it's up to five. We have had a situation where we were rehearsing all four ring operas and the Flying Dutchman at once. And, uh, <laughs> you know, extraordinarily, we have the space to do that, the physical space to do that. Every other company I've ever worked with or been associated with has to go out for at least some of the rehearsals. I include Covent Garden, that includes um, Frankfurt Opera, that includes the Vienna State Opera. But at Deutsche, everything is in-house, even when we're rehearsing five things at once, which is quite remarkable and makes, in that sense, our life very easy. Obviously, it means that when everything's coming all at once, yes, there can be an awful lot of... Uh, um, a, lot, a lot of planning involved and uh, a lot of moving parts. So moving on with the rest of the day, I would have sketched out for the next day the, the, the plan. I might do a coaching or two. I might play a staging rehearsal. Um, I find that very important to stay at the coal face, if you like. Um, apart from anything else, I absolutely love playing the piano. And, uh, I, you know, I love playing the piano all day. I always have, as you remember, when we used to live <laughs> of, together. Of um, course. And, uh, <laughs> Never a quiet moment. Precisely, for better or worse. Um, <laughs> and... Um, yeah, that, that, it keeps me in touch with the singers you know, as well. That, that's really the, the significant, important thing. And also the conductors, making sure that they feel happy, looked after, valued. The guest singers, the ensemble singers, the conductor, anybody who's, who's on the campus, really. 12 o'clock, roughly, I write the plan in, in association with my friends in the office. There's four or five of us in total in what they call the KBB, the Künstlerisches Betriebsbüro not to be mistaken with the KGB. Um, <laughs> and um, we managed to, to usually get the plan out between about 12, 30 and one, uh, so that people have a fighting chance of knowing what they're gonna do the next day. Then um, European city life being what it is, I cycle home, I have lunch. And then um, after that, what could happen? We could have auditions, that happens. For those well, that don't know, Chris, how, how long will your lunch break be? It's a bit different from uh, back in the UK, isn't it, in Germany? Ah, uh, well, now that depends. Yes, the, the staging rehearsals for operas usually happen 10 till 1 and 5 till 8. So you do have, theoretically, a four-hour break. That's you people, you singers, not us in, singers, the, in the office. absolutely. We have to carry on. <laughs> so we might, be, we might be hearing auditions. Living in Berlin, you know, there are tons of singers uh, working in a freelance capacity wanting to get their first leg up into the 
profession or indeed continue in their profession. So I might be coaching on in a private capacity one or two hours. And then from five to eight, it's, it's, it's the same again in terms of stagings. Shows are at 7.30, apart from on Sunday when they're at uh, six. Monday were dark, but uh, the days which are not Monday, we tend not to be dark. So uh, it's always um, something happening. And endless, endless opportunities to, 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 to go and, and, and see shows. Also endless opportunities to see the development of shows. I mean, we have, I mean, take one example completely at random. We have a pastor file, which we have from 2006. How is that developing? How is that, uh, how is that fared in the repertoire? Um, you know, you can see the same thing several times, obviously, and, uh, and get a really accurate picture of where the house is, where the house is going. What would some of your oldest ones be, Chris? The oldest production? The oldest production? Yeah, have... so how, yeah, how long are they on for, yeah? Oh, I see. Well, we've just had our 50th anniversary of Tosca. So that was, let me get this right, this was last year. So what's that, does that make it 1969? Mm -hmm. um, yes, yeah, so the, the house was rebuilt, refounded, if you like, in 1961, um, after some time in the wilderness, if you like. Um, so the oldest productions we have is that, and there's also Lucili Lamamo, which I think is from the same year, funnily enough, from, from the late right. 60s. And a show like Tosco, you know, you, you eight bankable evenings a year with a rotating door of fantastic guest stars. Um, so we've hit 50 years and I think it's 400 performances now. Amazing. Yeah. So, I mean, that leads us quite well on to, um, for, for some people that might not know the two main types of opera houses that there are, but we have stagioni houses and repertory houses. Do you want to talk a bit about those for maybe some undergraduates so that might not be familiar with how it works? Yeah, with pleasure. I mean, the reason why a young artist might not know why it works in the UK is because it doesn't exist in the UK. Exactly. Which is a very sad thing and it was not always the case. I think um, many great British singers who I know and who you know, James, and who have mentored you and worked with you um, grew, grew up at least to some extent in a, in a repertory system. Um, and my goodness, is that, uh, is that valuable? Um, I worked at ENO in the, uh, between 2011 and 2014. At that time, it styled itself a repertory house, but I didn't know what one was really until I came out to Germany. Um, um, a repertory house is essentially like a repertory theatre. You may, you may be familiar with, with that. In the UK, there's much more of that, um, where you have um, a salaried ensemble uh, of solo singers, um, in addition to the salaried orchestra, salaried chorus, salaried music staff, and so on. Um, and they form the core, the heartbeat of the artistic output. So you don't have, for each new production, a litany of, um, of guest contracts. Of course, you have some. It's very rare we do a purely ensemble project. However, we'll talk about one very special one this year uh, later on, I think. But um, no, so the ensemble is, is the backbone. So we're talking small roles, medium roles. In some cases, the largest roles. We have a, a wonderfully talented young American tenor called Robert Watson, who we've given um, Cavalladossi to and we've given Pinkerton to. So he has a chance to spread his wings, that's the phrase, whilst being, as it were, safe with us in the house, you know. Mm. So it obviously also means that you can put on a lot of shows. It also means that you have, for example, with Magic Flute, we don't have a run of Magic Flute. We have one a month. And that is great for the punters. You know, it's a great offering. You don't just get, you know, you can see flute in October, then you can't see it till the next May or something. Mm. You get one a month. Tosca's is very similar. Pieces like Traviata and Nabucco. And we also have, I mean, we have space. We have a gigantic warehouse on the other side of the city um, with space for, I think it's 54 productions. And we have space in our in our stage area, so you have the capacity for 
four or five different um, different sets. Depending on the sets, you have to be very careful. But uh, um, there's and there's somebody in the house whose job it is to make sure that if you have Nabucco on the on the Wednesday and you have Kongold das Wunder Helian on the Thursday, you can also have Siegfried on Friday. There's enough space, is there? You know, I mean, that's uh, that's a phenomenal bit of sort of visual logistics. Which, uh, absolutely. Oh yeah. Amazing. Absolutely. So, I mean, that's effectively the, the repertory house. Old hands at Deutsche Oper say, it's, oh, it's not what it was. We used to have any number of performances. The, the, the general number of performances per season is 170. If you go back to the, 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 the tens and the twenties of the last century, when um, the house was founded, you had a show every single night, apart from Christmas Eve, everyone. Incredible. It's opera. Now, that's long gone scale. because you used, you used to have, Oh yeah, I mean that's long gone because you used to have two orchestras, two choruses, two technical teams. The technical staff is um, absolutely critical to all this, of course, because the, the house would effectively be be open and functioning twenty four hours a day for that to work. Don't forget, you have to rehearse it all, of course. So um, you know the 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 number, the, the sheer critical mass you need is uh, immense. It's immense enough now with one hundred and seventy performances, you know. And um, like I say, w w when the wheels are are turning um, as they should be, it's an absolute joy when they're not then you have the, the feeling you're constantly playing catch up and you can hardly catch your breath um but um i mean i've been involved professionally now in i think it's always it's exactly 99 different operas and uh, there is no way i would there's no way anybody has that chance unless they're in a repertory house what i would say is that even in within germany deutsche oper is is, is quite an old-fashioned model other houses that do it famously vienna they have 60 titles per season usually um, they also have an ensemble of 60. Mannheim is another one, but they are, they are quite few and far between, but I say long may they continue. And I, I hope I'm not being too partisan when I say, as a Berlin opera goer, you get the best bang for your buck by a mile at the Deutsche Oper. I'd absolutely <laughs> agree with that. I mean, I had a wonderful time. I've worked there quite a bit now, I've done a few, a few productions at Deutsche Oper. The thing I love is that it's like one big family because everybody essentially yes. lives in the opera house, don't they? Because there's so much going on the whole time. That's it. Everything's completely uh, physically centralized. I mean, partly that's, that's the luck of how big the footprint of the house was when it was originally built. Uh, then it was bombed and there were, there were 15, 16 years where nothing was happening on that site. Then they rebuilt it on the site on that scale uh, so that you could have as much as we do have and, and were very fortunate to have had that really. Mm. Yeah, I know. It's, and it's something that unless <laughs> singers work abroad, they wouldn't experience anything like that in the UK. So. No. So that that brings us sadly that brings us nicely on to let's talk about the the model that most UK singers would come across, which is the stagione model. How does that work? Well, I mean, stagione uh, I think just means just means season. So it basically means you go season by season. Each project is a one-off. Of course, there are revivals, um, but uh, they're not, should we say, predictable revivals. You know, you can't say that we're going to do this production and we're going to bring bring it back every year for the next fifteen or something. Mm -hmm. So it's much more, yes, as I say, if, if, those, if those of you who've done festivals, summer festivals, it's more similar to that kind of model where you have a project, guest artists are engaged, guest artists come in. Um, you might know more about this than me, James, but I, I imagine in somewhere like Covent Garden, you have occasional chorus members being given smaller roles. Absolutely. Um, beyond that, you don't have that tie-in. Of course, you also have the Young Artist Programme, which is... Uh, yeah. And in the UK, often the young artists' programmes often function as a sort of very small ensemble to the houses, don't they? But exactly. it's nowhere near on the scale that, that of the ensemble managers in Germany. Well, no, I mean, the, the, the great thing about uh, 
well, the Young Arts Programme at Covent Garden is pretty much unparalleled. I think it's the best in the world mm. that I've come across. Um, there are us. I mean, the Staatsoper here in Berlin has a, has a fully fledged Young Artist Programme. We have a scholarship programme, which is effectively a kind of two-year probation for the ensemble. So it's not quite the same thing. You're not educated in that way. But uh, yes, the great thing about the full-time ensemble is that you have an age range from, you know, your mid-twenties with the very precocious singers to those who are in their late 50s, early 60s. And particularly with, with men, with lower voice men, that has obvious advantages when you're casting the older roles that you need. Yeah. I mean, let's do a few straight comparisons. So say in terms of rehearsal time, yeah. what would some of the fastest productions that you put up in the, in the repertory house, how, how long would you have to rehearse? Tosca, nine hours. Nine hours. And I, I did a, um, a Barbieri on three days, which let me tell you, when you're not, if you're not used to that, is a hell of an undertaking. Three but days, luxury. <laughs> but it's very exciting in a way as well because you prepare yeah. and you're thrown into a room with new colleagues and you have to make something happen in, in that moment, in those three rehearsals and in that show. You know, it's... Uh... Absolutely. It's real. Um, it, is, it is thrilling. I'm, I'm glad you found that um, uh, <laughs> when, when you were with us. It is thrilling. I've always found it thrilling. I've always loved juggling plates. Um, I'm a great believer in the maxim of um, quantity becomes quality. Um, if you manage it well, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, you know, if you know, nine, 11, 13 Verdi operas, then you're going to have a much greater fluency in the whole, in the whole style well. that, mm. than, than if you just studied two or three to the, you know, really in depth. It's mm. just, uh, for me, it's a fact of musical life. You know, the, mm. the, the, the more, you know, the better, you know, all of it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, whereas in the Stagione houses, um, you might have, you know, generally you'll have six weeks, what, six or seven weeks for a new production. Four weeks in the studio, a couple of weeks on stage. To be fair, we do have six weeks is roughly the model for our premieres. For your, um, you, yeah. yeah. And, I, got, um, I got the experience of both. I got a nice seven-week yeah. rehearsal for Hoffman and then a three-day one for Barbieri. So it's, That's right. Couldn't be more different. And again, singers from the UK, if they're not used to that level of preparation and expectation to put an opera on in three days compared to often the music college music college productions, which would also they'd have what six weeks probably usually don't yeah. they? Four and or six maybe weeks. one per term or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's a very um, very different way of working. But again, a very I mean, of, of course you, you of course you have to learn your craft. You know, you have to mm. when you're that much younger, you have to spend a lot of time. And listen, I mean. They can be wonderfully fulfilling experiences, these long, these long rehearsals. I mean, they're not bad in themselves. And I should say that the average rehearsal time for us, for a, um, for a revival, is between uh, 10 days and three weeks. I, 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 the Tosca is extraordinarily extreme. But what I would say about the whole, the, the whole <laughs> repertoire system is that you absolutely have to be prepared, completely prepared. There is not time to stop and smell the flowers, you know? You've, you've got to be ready to go. And you've got to be very agile, learning on your feet, learning in your own performance, in your own artistry, what's working, what's not working. And, and critically, not wait to be told. Because... Yes. There's not you know, time. To, in, no, there's not time. And in the most mm. brutal cases, um, you, it's, it's too late, you know? I mean, mm. if, you, if, if you sign a contract to be a guest artist, you, it is your responsibility to turn up fully prepared. And we, as a house, have the full right to invoke that clause, let's say. However... It does happen, and it has happened with some with a fairly a fairly serious name who I obviously won't mention. But a couple of years ago, we did run into that problem with with, with a serious, respected, uh, uh, known worldwide name, and we had to say, "I'm sorry, that's that's not that's not right," and it's not you know you are in breach of contract technically. Now, of course, if an ensemble member doesn't know the their stuff, it's my fault. <laughs> um, so that that comes back to uh, 
that comes back to my my role, my job. Any ensemble member singing any role in any opera, I need to be satisfied that they are on top. So, of what it. would be a good average of productions for an ensemble <laughs> member to have to learn in a year? Oh, good question. Um, it varies wildly, of course, and, and of course, you only learn something new once. Um, so, most of the older ensemble members will will not be learning too much new, apart from the premieres. Um, so, we have roughly six premieres a year and about 31, 32 revivals. But uh, I would say it, var it varies also according to age and voice type. But in the most extreme case, a younger, lower voiced man, maybe 12. Which is, you know, a, a, a lot compared to maybe, <laughs> I, w I would say most people w in a freelance career would do five maximum a year. I mean, generally a Absolutely, project lasts, yeah. lasts three months, doesn't it? So you can probably fit five in at an absolute push if you do two productions at the same time in one house. But, you know, it's a, it's a completely different scale. But, I mean, what an amazing way to learn your craft with that much being thrown on stage, you know, that much. If you've got the if your techniques together, which we'll come to, and you're vocally ready for that, it's a yeah. wonderful training. And it is also... Um, some people enjoy that, that way of being, of living. They mm. come to a city, they're on the ensemble, they buy a house, have children, and that's their life as an ensemble member. And that's great. We need people like that. There are also people for whom it is uh, the kind of crucible where they're learning, they, they craft all the pitfalls, all the possibilities. And then after a certain time, they spread their wings and, and say, okay, I'm going to become a freelance artist now and be a bit more selective in my projects or try and be a bit more high profile with my projects. And mm. what's very nice about the way our, our, our specific ensemble works is that uh, we have great relationships with people who have left the ensemble um, and they're not officially should we say principal guest artists or anything but unofficially they are you know so we you know we we, we know them we know their work ethic we know their voice of course and you look often, after them yeah we look after them and we've, mm. we've, we've seen their voice develop and so this is something I'm learning how to do and I have a fantastic boss the director of opera here um, is an absolute master of this where will they be in five years what can we offer them in five years time what can we not necessarily promise them, but point them in the direction of um, yeah, the big in, trajectory over yeah. uh, over decades. Sometimes yeah. that really experienced casting directors can really help with that if they really know their craft. Yeah, that's it. And there's just no way to learn that apart from just Experience. being in the cold face day after day after day. And uh, you know, you maybe make a private note to yourself. Oh, I think the singer will be doing this in in, in a year's time, eighteen months time, and you're completely wrong. Okay, well, I've learned something. You know, so I mean, we as we as cast, you know, in, in the casting team, shall we say, or the support team, however you want to describe it, we're learning too. We're not we're not perfect either. And uh, the best opera directors and the best casting directors are the ones who who admit when they get something wrong, but they only get they only get it wrong once. You know, um, absolutely. They learn from their experience or their mistakes. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Probably worth saying as well for for people that aren't familiar with these systems. I mean, uh, being on a a repertory, it being in, in a repertory house is probably the closest a singer can get to a normal nine to five job where they can be in one place and bring up a family. And because most of the time it's in, it travel, travel, travel the whole time, and you're in many different opera houses across the world. It's a very sort of um, <laughs> gypsy like existence. But if you are um, if you want to be secure and stay in one place, it's a fantastic thing to do, isn't it? Absolutely is. I would inject one note of caution with that, which is that German employment law uh, has it that you can work 15 years at a certain place without being offered a permanent contract. Mm. So my contract also is technically a rolling one. And uh, of course, there are 
sad stories of singers who have established a life for themselves and on, in the 14th year they're not uh, their contracts are not prolonged so that's something to think very carefully about but as you say it is i mean i i feel like i have the best of both worlds myself i have a job where i i get the most tremendous fulfillment artistically and i also can come home to my to my wife and daughter actually actually twice a day usually um yeah. you know for lunch and then, and then at the end of the day absolutely lovely I'm going to talk now a bit about the the diseases of our times, COVID-19. Um, it's affected all of us. We've talked a bit about in various podcasts about the UK response, but tell us what, what was the German response like to this? How's opera been managing? Well, I mean, opera was, you know, an early casualty like it is, uh, like it has been across the, across the world. Uh, we actually got our first announcement of postponing of our activities on the same day we launched our 2021 season. Not Literally the sort of announcement you want the day you open a season. Well, that's the thing. I mean, we actually, we, we launched the season. We, we did the launch, you know, and obviously the literature had been prepared and printed. And, and needless to say, there's big contracts have been signed as, as well, obviously long in advance. And may I say, it was, you know, even by Deutsche Oper's, I think, very high standards. It was a really exciting season. So it's, uh, uh, that was a bit of a, a punch to the solar plexus. What happened with us at Deutsche Oper is that we did not um, cancel everything until the end of the season straight away. The first, um, the first pause, if you like, was about a month long. And then we did it incrementally. I couldn't tell you the exact date when we then said, okay, the season is now off. But um, it was later than you'd think. We wanted to keep options open. We wanted to see how the situation developed. Um, and uh, that was largely the response of, of Deutsche. I can't speak to the other two Berlin houses. I think I'm right in saying Cornish Opera were a bit more drastic. Uh, but I don't want to get into hot water by getting that wrong. So uh, um, anyway, that's how we played it at Deutsche. We kept coaching, we kept working. You know, um, personally, I was I was off for a little bit for personal reasons, but uh, what I see in the UK is a little bit of that, but nowhere near enough. And I have to say, I think it's a country that needs it more because you don't have what you'd call a cultural vote in the UK. You don't have a reliable audience of several hundred thousand who would who keep the thing afloat by subscriptions and, you know, even if they weren't physically turning up to the shows. And, we, um, and it's probably worth mentioning at this point as well, we don't have the kind of support from the state that Germany have here well, either. I was, just, yeah. I was just about to go on to that. It's yeah. exactly right. So firstly, in Berlin, I mean, Berlin is a, is a state as well as a city within, within the Federal Republic, right? Um, so the Berlin cultural authorities were very quick to organise no strings, 5,000 euro handouts for freelance artists. That wasn't actually unlimited, but I had two friends, no, th no, three or four friends, sorry, who were able to apply for that as it, as it were before that fund ran out. Yes. But the point, the point is that from a house level, everything was secure because we have very generous state funding and there are very good schemes already in place for when the work of an institution shrinks. It's something called Kurzarbeit, literally means short work, but it's basically when you uh, work 33% of the time and get 33% of your pay from the company and the, um, the work, work ministry, work agency um, pays the rest. Of course, it wasn't designed for a situation where 70 million people were on, this, were on that system all at once. But uh, on the other hand, that's the broad, the, the political, big political picture. So the, those who were employed were helped with this Kurzarbeit scheme and those who were uh, freelance um, had at least a chance to claim this uh, this cash boost. So, obviously, you know, if you if you play your cards right in Berlin, I mean, five thousand euros, uh, you know, it's a good it's a good two three months, I think. As opposed to the English response, which was essentially you could apply for the income support scheme, mm. and 
but once that's finished, which is coming up now, you, you are on the dole, basically. I mean, there's as yet, there's been no announcement of any further help for freelance artists in the UK. So it's a, a pretty frightening picture, actually, compared well, to our German and, and, colleagues. Do you know what, James? It, it really um, links back to what we were saying earlier about Stadio Unido versus Repertory, because if you have a Repertory house, let alone if you have sort of 95 or however many there are in Germany, it's the most extraordinary number, then you have a sector, right? That is, and you've got pension contributions and you've got insurance and you've got all that sort of stuff, which wires it, hardwires it into the fabric of Cult life. The culture, yeah, of yeah. course. And it's not just cultural life, it's not just mm. a ghettoized kind of, and perceived to be elite, all this nonsense. Mm. Um, there's nothing There's nothing elitist about it, it's the most accessible uh, art form. Certainly here we have almost 1900 seats. We, are, we, are, we always have a healthy attendance, but we are very rarely full. Now that obviously sounds like it's bad, but the point is, you have always a chance if you are, even if you're a student or if you're somebody on relatively limited means, you have a very good chance of just wandering by the opera house on a Thursday night and being able to get in, which is, is a, tre amazing. a tremendous thing. And I, I love that. I absolutely love that. I think that's, that's exactly what our art form should be about. So anyway, so Germany has responded you know, very well. Of course, the numbers bear that out on an on a international level. The numbers bear that out very well. But they were also in the cultural context coming from a position of real strength you know it's already hardwired into the continental european mindset in a way that i wonder whether it ever has been in the uk i mean yeah. you have these marvelous stories of beecham in 1900 conducting the second act of tannhäuser interspersed with variety acts and um <laughs> amusing impressions by mr ernest j um <laughs> what's his face you know and you know that was that was the situation 120 years ago I wonder if it's so different now, especially with the cultural leaders chasing so desperately after some sort of perceived inclusivity, which uh, is a huge red herring. Anyway, that's probably a, another conversation for another podcast. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I, I could talk a little bit about a special project we did now at Deutsche, if you like. Um, Absolutely, yeah. Which I was alluding to earlier, it made me really, really proud. We had planned a new ring cycle starting on the 12th of June this year with Rheingold, obviously the first installment. Um, directed by Stefan Erheim, who's one of the great European directors. This is a very big deal in the life of Deutsche Orgel. We haven't had a new ring for 35 years. The old ring was a real cult hit by a man called Götz Friedrich, who was a, a real mover and shaker in the cultural life of West Berlin. Don't forget, we used to be West Berlin, right? Um, mm. Made us even more important in those days. An operatic um, godfather he was, wasn't he? He certainly was, yeah. And he worked a lot in, in Covent Garden uh, with Colin Davis as well. You know, he was... He was the real deal. Anyway, new ring cycle. Clearly, we couldn't do Rheingold under normal circumstances. There is, however, um, an arrangement by Jonathan Dove, the English composer, for, I think it's 22, 23 instruments, and with some cuts, some judicious, some very much not judicious, um, <laughs> of, the whole, of the whole ring. The idea, when he did it in 1990 for the Birmingham Upper Group with Graham Vick, was so that you could tour it. You know, you could go into a provincial place and you could say, this is the ring cycle. Fantastic idea. It works so well in Britain because you don't have a, an opera house in every city. Yeah. Um, and you, you couldn't even fit the, the full orchestra in many theatres if you wanted to, could you? In exactly Britain. that. I mean, oh, yeah. And the opera house struggles to house the, the, the ring orchestra. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Absolutely. So, anyway, for all those reasons, a great thing. And we have, in our sort of campus, we have an open-air car park, which is sort of raised about... Uh, eight feet off the ground, it's kind of hard to describe, but if you're driving off the road, you come up a ramp and then you're there. That links to a kind of uh, upper level where they bring all the scenery into the main theatre. So what you have there is you have an elevated stage 
and you have, if the weather holds, you have plenty of space for a lot of chairs. So the leaders of the house here put two and two together and said, well, why do we do that? And we do it on the day that we were supposed to be premiering Ryan God, that was June 12. So the first tentative steps coming out of lockdown, but really nothing, uh, nothing open, nothing happening. So we got our 22 musicians together, socially distanced, uh, all very responsible. We got a special dispensation from the uh, cultural office in Berlin. And uh, we jolly well put Rangold on in 10 days. And it was, um, Amazing. It, was, it was an ensemble performance as well. Everyone, Vortan, Fricka, Erde, you name it, they were all in the ensemble and are still all in the ensemble. So we didn't have to fly anybody in, you see. We didn't have to sign any special contract. We didn't have to run, you know, nobody had to run the golden of getting on a plane. And for those that don't know the ring cycle, that is a colossal achievement. I mean, really, to be able to cast that from within your own ensemble, put it on so quickly. I mean, it's a huge undertaking. Yeah, and it's, it's 13, it's usually 14, but it's 13 because Jonathan Dove completes two of the roles. Anyway, it's 13-hander, right? And in terms of ensembles, yes, of course, you have the Rhine Maidens. But apart from that, those are distinct parts, okay? Mm -hmm. So everyone has their parts. Do you know what? We even had covers. And this was all within the ensemble. And there were other options as well, should somebody get sick, which they did. There was an Albany who we had, and he rehearsed a couple of days, and he got very ill, not with COVID, thankfully, with something else. And we put the cover Alberic on. He did, he did enormous credit to himself. So it was, you know, what was really amazing, James, was when they were doing the orchestral rehearsals outside. So you have people gathering by the edge of the car park, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. What's going on here? You know? And I, I turned to my colleague and I said, this is the only Wagner being played anywhere on planet Earth now. And I mean, since when, I mean, since what, the 1870s? That, that has never, never ever been the case. And mm. we, there we were in the carpa, and it was tremendously moving. We were all really, really moved by it. And probably and, one uh, of the only operas going on in the whole world at that time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. In, in terms of fully staged, I mean, there had been a concert here and there. There had been some experiments, but we had costumes, we had masks, we had masks, sorry, we had makeup. Makeup, um, yeah, of course. <clears throat> Maska is the German word, so I was getting confused. But even that was rigorously taken care of. You know, the singers had to wash, wash their own hair, you know, mm. to minimise contact between, the, between them and the dresses and so on. Um, so it was all done, like I say, within the law, well within the law, but saying, you know, how much art can we produce whilst keeping it legal? You know, the tickets, we had six performances. There were 250 seats each, and it was basically a kind of golden ticket system. They were five euros, five, and then there was... Uh, Mate, yeah. There was a donation possibility at the end for those who wanted to, and they did. And the tickets, they sold out in 12 minutes. Thank you, Mr. Wagner. Thank you, Deutsche Oper. I mean, Absolutely. That is, it, and thank you, the German public, for, for supporting it amidst the crisis and just getting into the Opera House. We need more of that in the UK. That's absolutely right. But the great thing is they, they were doing it to support us, of course. But they also want it. Their cultural, I don't want to call it a fix because that sounds bad, but, you know, it, it, it's, what can I say? It's a part of life, you know? If you are, you know... If you're wondering what to do of an evening, you know, you just think, what should we do tonight, darling? Should we go for dinner? Should we go to the movies? Should we go to the opera? And they're equally, do you understand? They're equally as accessible. And that's really tremendous. And then, you know, we had this project and it was, you know, it was a gesture really to the whole opera world and community and to our public in Charlottenburg. So, you know, we are unusual as an opera house. We're not in the centre of uh, the city. So we, we have very much our own, so to speak, our own public, you know, and, uh, relics of the cold war as well mixed in there so anyway, we have a we have a lovely relationship with our public as we like to think of it and they like to think of us as their house so um uh you know it was a gesture to them to say you know thank you for making possible for what we do you know. yeah exactly yes. so we're going to do some more of those in the beginning of the season and we're going to do 
other projects in the same space <coughs> in August. And then in September, we're going to try some indoor stuff um, mm. without chorus. Um, you know, chorus is the, is the hot topic, really, depending on who you listen to, who you, speak, who to, you yeah. speak to. Of course, the chorus members themselves, you know, they're a range of ages and a range of, uh, should we say, health profiles, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. 80 of them. And, you know, they all have to be happy. That's quite right. And we have to, yeah, of course, obey the, obey the law. So there's obviously big question marks about how we go forward. So when um, do the lights come up again on stage? Because it's still dark, presumably, at the moment. You mean the indoor auditorium? Yeah. Yes. Uh, uh, Mid-September. So right. we have, we were going to do, in September, we were going to do Nabucco, Aida, and La Gioconda, um, amongst many other things, which have fallen by the wayside. Mm. Um, so you can't do Nabucco without chorus. It's not possible. So uh, we are using the same soloist there for a Verdi gala. Orchestra on stage, everybody in the right distance and so on. Audience, I think it's 500 or 750. I can't remember. Mm -hmm. um, so we have we have nearly 2,000 seats, which by German, I know it's not big compared with Covent Garden, but by German standards, that's very big. Mm. Second, second biggest in the country. Um, which so, gives you that flexibility with distancing, doesn't it? That's exactly right. So we'll do that, I think, three times, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Mm -hmm. um, the next Friday, Saturday, Sunday, we're doing a kind of best of Aida. So, you know, the important scenes with the soloists. And, the lollipops. Yeah, exactly, pretty much. Yeah. It also, um, 100 minutes, no interval. So you don't have the problem of um, bars and toilet facilities, bars. Toilets, so. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then the same thing at the end of September for Joconda. Fantastic. So, so that's where we are. Then theoretically, we're into Turandos. We're into this, this Antichrist piece again with the big chorus. Like I say, that's very unlikely. And, uh, mm. But uh, we, need to, we need to just keep talking, really, and, and, and keep seeing what's possible. We know the appetite is there. We know people will turn up uh, in their droves. So we just need to make sure that we do what we can responsibly and really push the envelope, really say how much art can we offer our public, you know? I mean, it's a, I've been involved in quite a lot of discussions in the UK about how we move forward over the last couple of weeks. And it seems to me that the attitude at the moment is that the British public won't come back even if some of these places did open. They wouldn't have enough of the public. And because they don't have the same sort of state funding that, you know, essentially they're going to open the doors and lose money, which is obviously in this current climate where all the arts institutions are already, already hemorrhaging cash, is tricky. But, I mean, I think you've got to put the stuff on and then the public will come. If, if the attitude from you is, oh, do you really want to come in this very difficult time? People will say, oh, no, we'd rather leave it. But if you actually say, we're going to do this, as they have at Glyndebourne, in fact, and they sold out within, you know, days of, of opening oh, of uh, Glyndebourne. Yeah. So it's, I think we've really got to um, change our attitude to a much more positive one in the UK and do what we can as soon as we can. Because a lot of companies are talking about remaining closed until, um, you know, or reopening in January, remaining closed until then, which is... Absolutely. And there are some American outfits which are even longer than that. Um, mm -hmm. And I do think that's obviously a great concern. You know, in Germany, it's, it's very different because in a, in, in, a great, in a really good sense, it's provincial, okay? So I can cycle to and from my place of work. Even if I work to the Staatsoper, which is in the centre of town, I could cycle to and from my place of work. In a city like London, where obviously the vast bulk of the um, artistic sector sort of is, um, you are going to need to get on a tube. So... Um, I do think it's, and, and I think New York is the same. I think the big metropolises of, um, of, of, of America, it's similar. So I think country house opera is the, the mover and shaker at the moment in the mm. UK, as far as I can see. Mm. And I think that's absolutely right. I mean, you've got the open door, 
the open air space. You know, you've got, uh, in some cases, theatres which are not entirely closed or covered, so you've got airflow and all that. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, what, what's, what I want to see is I want to see um, any, any cultural leader, you know, really pushing. What can we offer? What can we give? And I think, I mean, you know, Ian's uh, idea of driving is, uh, I'm sure it's not going to be without its problems, but... That's at the least spirit. It, That's yeah, the spirit, I say. At least it's something, yeah. Let's get something on. Well, I mean, before we get too all bogged down with all of that, I mean, I mean, it sounds to me like there, there's a lot of hope in the in the German system at the moment to getting everything back, and I just hope Absolutely. that the UK follows quickly. And um, Austria, you know, the Salzburg Festival in a much reduced capacity is going ahead from the 1st of August. And you can watch it live. If you if you get the Arte channel or app, mm-hmm. um, you can watch it live. So that's that's pretty pretty fantastic too. So the, the last thing I wanted to um, for us to discuss yeah. is your meat and drink, which is putting singers and music together. Absolutely. So, which is another huge part of your job. I mean, Chris, Chris um, is a, a, a repetitor and that's a hallowed term in, in my view. Um, these are very, very, very special people, great musicians. There aren't many of them uh, of the sort of level Chris is at. Tell us about that term repetitor and what that means in the opera. Well, basically it's, Let's say it's walking alongside the singer as an individual, and then them as part of the part of part of the the ensemble of the show um, to um, get them from a position, say in some cases where they haven't even opened the score, to being able to um, sing their roles, you know, with conviction on stage. So that's it's as simple as that, and it's as complicated as that because, of course, <laughs> you're dealing with uh, people of different ages, stages, levels of experience, and uh, uh, let's be honest, talent. And you might be dealing with somebody who doesn't, who isn't familiar with the language. You might be coaching in a different language. That's quite tricky uh, sometimes to coach in German or even in Italian sometimes. And yeah, what does the singer need at that particular point? What is going to bring them on the, the quickest and the most efficiently and effectively so that they can fulfill their obligation to learn a role while simultaneously singing to others? So it's... Uh, it's sort of endlessly fascinating and it, and it never, if you like, sits still. So, I mean, I can work with, with one artist on, on something and they're in a completely different headspace than when they're working on something else, you know. Mm. And um, sometimes you get, the, you get the most exciting uh, breakthroughs in really the most standard rep. You know, I, was, I obviously like to discover new music or music that is new to me, not necessarily mm. contemporary music, but music that I, that I don't yet know. But uh, one of the most standout coachings of my career so far was on Violetta, on Sempre Libera. You know, the, the, the role in the aria that the singer in question has sung any number of times. And we just found something new together, you know. Um, and uh, it was really unforgettable. So um, that's, uh, that's the singer's part. I've got half an eye also on, on the, the musical, how the whole thing comes together musically. So when we get to stage, I'm interested in balance on the most basic level. I'm interested in how the singer is reacting with the conductor, how the conductor is reacting with the singer. That's not an easy easy equation either and you know in the overall product feeding back to the singer feeding back to the conductor feeding back the conductor's wishes to the singer <laughs> often in more diplomatic terms than the conductor is just using put me. them in originally um, yeah quite <laughs> precisely um and uh yeah so it's 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 effectively just from 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 really from inception sometimes to to the finished product it's looking after walking alongside these fantastic talented wonderful people and Chris is also a phenomenal piano virtuoso and makes the piano sound like an orchestra. Talk to us a bit about that. That's another massive part of your job. Yeah, that's being a... the orchestra when the orchestra's not there. Exactly right. 
So obviously in a six-week rehearsal period, you don't have the orchestra the whole time. They're learning the piece perhaps for the first time or perhaps training it uh, under, the new, under the new conductor. So um, yeah, from day one of the stagings, I'm there. My colleagues are there. Um, we're all um, playing these fantastic scores and it's i've always loved that i mean you remember james from when we first very first knew each other we never we couldn't um, stop uh, did we? <laughs> no absolutely i remember doing uh Bortan's farewell with you about 10 years before it was appropriate and, uh, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, i think it's um sort of both in good stead right yeah that's just um an ever-evolving thing and it really matters you know i mean the the the, the energy you deliver as a pianist in the room it has an influence on, on the conductor it has an influence on the singers how they not just in terms of their feeling comfortable, but you know how the music swings along. You know, so one hears a lot. You know, you don't have to be fantastic pianist to, to be a repetitor. I, I really, truly don't believe that. And you've got to be an pianists... incredible pianist yeah, to yeah. be a repetitor and do it properly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, because I think what they mean is, you know, it's it's more about marking time and about where the singers know where they are. Well, I mean, on a most basic level, sure. But I mean, that's just uh, I always have played as pianistically as possible because. I train as a pianist, right? So my view is I shouldn't be getting the piano to copy the orchestra. Ultimately, the orchestra should be able to play with the same freedom and the same color palette that, that the piano does, right? So the other way around. Um, and this is what I always say to, to younger reps and pianists, sometimes who come to me in Berlin, and sometimes I've, I've given one or two talks to in London. You know, it's not about what the second bassoon is doing here. You know, it's not about that. It's about the energy of the music. I mean, you have a score like Electra, which I recently prepared you know and it's it's you know it's the most overwhelming thing when you when you get it to, to the orchestra stage um but the question is how do you how do you transmit that energy as a as a pianist and again that's that's never-endingly fascinating really obviously you have more than half an eye on on your conductor because you need to shape it the way he or she wants to shape it but so uh, you can also i i think as a pianist you can influence the conductor you can really say oh they, they hadn't necessarily thought of that you know you can follow while still projecting your artistic personality and wishes on it. Having a really phenomenal repetitor really raises the energy in the room and, and, and the quality of the work in the room. If you've got this, you know, somebody creating this sound at the piano that really makes you feel like the orchestra is there, even though it isn't there, it makes a huge difference. I, I'd like to think so. I hope so. Yeah. Um, my, my predecessor as a studio lighter, he managed to get the house to invest, you know, tens of thousands of euros in, 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 in new pianos so that we could really do our jobs as best we possibly could. And I believe in that wholeheartedly. Unfortunately, in, in, in Bayreuth, when I've had the real honor to work twice, the philosophy was completely different. The philosophy was that the uh, piano should stay as out of the way as possible, and therefore they should be as bad as possible. And the pianos in Bayreuth are terrible i mean terrible <laughs> it's a case where a, 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 it's not that it's not the bad workman it really is the tools in that case yes normally i wouldn't say it but in that case it really yes <laughs> so in terms of let's talk a bit about auditions so that's another yeah, sure. part of your role isn't it um tell us about that okay well i mean as i i think i mentioned at the beginning of the of the podcast we don't have an audition season a lot of singers english language singers will say when's your audition season well, the answer to that is every Tuesday, Tuesday or Wednesday, <laughs> uh, sometimes twice a week. At two, this is the one thing that gets me back after my lunch break if I don't have a staging rehearsal in the evening. Is uh, the auditions which take place in the afternoon, in the middle of the week, every week throughout the whole season, and we usually hear six singers. So, if you as a singer are out there wondering when to put your, when is the right time to put your CV in, the time is now. Okay, Send we've it. got slots. We've got slots to fill. We've got tons of roles to fill. We want to hear from you, you know. So you know that's a, that's a really serious piece of advice I would give to anybody. Is you know if you're happy with your 
with your CV, with your recordings or your videos, or ideally both, you know, we want to hear from you. You know, you usually want to contact the KBB, so KBB, that's the Artistic Administration Office. Ask at any any switchboard of any opera house, KBB, they will know what you mean. Okay, so don't have any fear about that. Sometimes we are listening for a specific slot on the ensemble. We've lost a mezzo, we need a new mezzo. That's actually less common than you might think. What we basically want is to hear really good singing. And uh, my boss, the opera director, will want that singer perhaps as a scholarship singer, you know, for a couple of years. I believe you had such an offer, James. Um, and uh, they might, uh, yeah, they, if, if the singer is very, very welcome, it was too, yeah. Uh, absolutely. Um, yeah, it, <laughs> if they're looking for a particular role or a cover for a particular role just to test out, is this singer the real deal? Because, of course, you only get 15 minutes uh, with them. Um, then uh, we might say that too. Um, and so we really hear all shapes and sizes, all ages, all voice types, all the time. You know, so which again, from my side, is fantastic because I just get so much experience. You know, I, I'm scribbling away. I think this thing is no good. I look over at my my boss. He's formed the opposite opinion. I don't have to go with his opinion, but I, I have. I can think. Okay, well, why is he saying that? What angle is he coming from? Why do I agree with him or not agree with him? Um, and uh, that's that's really great fun from my perspective. Um, and uh, you know, like I said, there's just a lot of opera we put on, and we need singers. You know. And then, so give me some uh, audition 101 stuff. What do you see that you like and what do you often see that you don't like in auditions? Absolutely. Okay, that's a really, a really good question. So um, the key thing with, with an auditionee that you can sort of smell, if you like, is desperation. Yeah, is, is please, please hire me, please. So that will often manifest itself as saying, good afternoon, good morning, nice to see you, nice to be here, how are you doing? You know, a hundred times. It will often... <laughs> often manifest as every every rubato phrase and every aria being done to the nth degree, every high note being held, you know, to a ridiculous extent and all that sort of stuff. Um, and um, sort of over, you know, hammy, over, overacting on stage. Mm -hmm. The most impressive auditions I can ever, I can always remember are the ones which were, shall we say, still. So I'm not talking about stiff or, or anything like that. Of course not. Far from it. But um, they were still, they made you as a listener lean forward in your chair and want to be engaged in what they're doing. That's what great artists do on stage. They don't transmit this, please, please love me, please, you know, please listen to me. The really greatest, and I'm talking about the absolute, the, the, the singers for the ages, you know, um, are the ones who make you as a listener lean forward in your, in, in your chair. Yeah. So keep it short when you're presenting yourself, you know, we know that Ach ich fühls is Pamina's aria from Mozart's opera, the, the Magic Flute. We do not need you to tell us <laughs> they are going to sing Ach ich fühls, which is Pamina's aria from Mozart's opera, the Magic Flute. Okay. For example, you know, it shows that you're on top of your game. I know this seems like a tiny thing. It shows that you're on top of your material. If we say, "What would you like to sing, Pamina?" Go. You know, for a start, that's a real piece of standard rep, and don't be afraid of standard rep. Don't hide behind esoteric, crazy stuff. Yeah, we we want to hear you. It's a bit of a UK. Mm, I was going to say it's a bit of a UK music college disease, isn't it? You know, don't don't do the arias everybody knows. You should do the arias that you're most comfortable with and that show you off the best. Don't avoid repertoire because you think it's overdone necessarily. Absolutely, quite the reverse. No, I mean, and and there's also the question of fuck, which I I think we should touch on. Um, talking about ensemble life. Yes, and all that. I agree. Um, 
So we don't just have soprano, alto, tenor, bass. We have within uh, each voice type, we have, um, let's say, uh, a drawer into which they fit. Now, this is mm. not this is not like an eternal truth. This was invented by a man called Kloiber um, and has been around for about 100 years. And the reason for it is to uh, make sure that the opera house can employ enough people to sing all the roles they need. So we shouldn't get obsessed with it. But on the other hand, we shouldn't, if we're a tenor, be offering Rossini and Handel and Wagner and Britain and, you know, Zinakis or something like that. Because that's scattered. It's not focused. Yeah, yeah. Dispersed, yeah. Exactly. The, the number of people we have to listen to, the reality is there's not much time. So we need you to do that work for us. We need you, we need you to know uh, where you fit in your voice time, what sort of fuck you are, whether you are um, a lyrical fuck, whether you're a comical fuck, you know, a spiel, um, or whether you're in the heavier end of, of your voice type. And ideally, we need, we need you to have a sense of where you think you're going to be in a few years' time. So you might bring the three or four areas that you're most comfortable with, and then you might have one, as I say to my, my coaches, in your back pocket. A wild card. Exactly. Hmm. Then don't be afraid to say that's your wild card. Don't be afraid to say, this is something that I'm working on with my teacher or with my coach or whatever, and it's just, you know, if, if they pick it or if you want to choose it to say, okay, well, you know, this isn't the finished product yet, but, you know, we are grown-ups. We know that people develop and develop their, their, their voices and their abilities. That's right and proper course it is. Um, so uh, if you have a real sense as a singer of where you fit in the firmament and um, where you, an idea at least of where you'll be in a few years' time, that goes a huge way. And then it's this self-possession, it's this stillness, physical stillness confidence. to a certain extent. Mm. Exactly, it exudes confidence and it makes, hopefully, audition panels across the country put their blooming mobile phones down and listen. And once you've got them listening, then that's really 90% of the battle. And uh, then you can mm. take them on a journey. And listen, we like opera, we like Pamina, we like Susanna, we like the Count, you know? You can never, you can never hear too much of that stuff. One other thing I would say as a general rule is do not second guess what you think the panel is bound to pick. So if your favorite aria is a German romantic aria, don't then start with, you know, um, a piece of Mozart in Italian thinking, oh, they're bound to pick the German one. Hmm. Yeah, because you can't predict that. You don't know what they're thinking. You don't know what they, what they want. You go with the one that is absolutely the best for you. And if it is something which is a bit more esoteric, have a think about that. Have a think about whether that really projects you to, to the best of your ability. In fact, a case in point, when we were auditioning in America, we have a, a link with the Opera Foundation in America, and we go to New York once a year to hear singers. One of the chaps that we eventually ended up engaging, um, he started with a piece of Britain, really quite an obscure piece of Britain. I mean, not, not your standard Britain. I won't go into the details for, for his sake. And we were really interested and struck by the voice. But as he was saying, we knew the piece. Uh, we knew that it wasn't going to show much, really, if anything. And to be honest, we had 50 other people to listen to. So I stopped him after eight bars. And I said, look, we want you to sing something else. Rest assured, it's, bec it's because we're interested. It's not because we are trying to get you out the door. Quite the reverse. But we want, you know, he had another very standard piece of rec on his, uh, on his, on his sheet. So he said, okay, well, let's cut through the, cut through the trying to show me that you're really clever and that you, that, that you know your, 
ways through the highways and byways of the uh, of the repertoire and let's hear the real solid stuff um so that we can really get a sense of your voice and he jolly well sang that very nicely as well and we and we took him so um that was a happy ending there but i think there are you know quite a few opportunities lost by trying to outthink a panel don't show them your best yeah absolutely show them your best. don't put things on the list as you say don't put don't put things on the list you don't want to sing, which some people do. They put things on there and they think, oh, I hope they don't pick that one. If you're feeling that, don't put it on the list. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's pretty foolish. We, we, do, we do get that occasionally, not that often. I mean, I, I always say singers often come to me and say, I've got an audition coming up for an ensemble post. And I always say, right, well, what, what in an ideal world, what are the five roles that you want that opera house to give yeah. you in your first year? And have you <laughs> learned them? And have you indicated to them by the things on your list that, that how useful you can be to the house? That's yeah, the way yeah, I absolutely. Yeah, and I think, uh, I think the National Opera Studio does, or certainly used to do, was it the, what do they call it, the core roles or the key roles? Yeah, well, they have to um, learn a few core roles in their far. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's, that's absolutely tremendous. I think that's a, that's a really, really good idea. Yeah, exactly. What can we offer to the house? What can we, uh, how can we be useful? But look, I mean, if we're excited by a singer, we'll take them under our wing. And mm. if we are excited by a singer who nonetheless has uh, very little experience for whatever reason, we will, if we're excited enough, we will still take them under our wing and we will make allowances for that, give them plenty of coaching. You know, we have the capacity within the house to do that. We have, uh, we, you know, we at Deutsche have a, a really tremendous range of of pianists from from the young ones who who can get us get alongside the the young singers and, and really uh, help them and challenge them and learn together and the sort of elder statesmen who have seen and heard singers over many decades mm. and um will say um you know oh your voice reminds me of a young Mathilde de Cagny or I have no idea who that is but uh, I'm, glad you, I'm glad you think so. um but that's really good to have that depth of, of knowledge. Um, if I name drop a couple of British colleagues, uh, Tony Legg and David Cyrus, um, you know, just being steeped oh, over so many incredible. years and decades um, in voice and, 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 and what, uh, what makes it a great voice and where, you know, a young voice put a, put a potential could be not just in five years, in 30, you know, um, that's, uh, that's experience that money really can't buy. But um, yeah, from a singer's perspective, exactly how, can I offer uh, the best of myself to the house? But on the other hand, don't overtry. Let your let your talent and your voice shine through. I very rarely um, look at the singer straight away. I, I, I put my eyes down. I close my eyes. I want to really listen to that sound. Hopefully, that sound is exciting enough for me to open my eyes and then and then see the rest of the whole. Mm -hmm. um, but it starts with the voice, and you know the, the the sort of the classic interview prep that you that you would get if you were interviewing for a job as an insurance broker or something you know about wearing a suit and having a nice smile and having a firm handshake look i mean that's not nothing but it's it's very very far down the pecking order when we're talking about singing i want voice you know i want to hear and luckily my my boss christopher name checked a few times now he is an absolute sucker for a well-produced well-articulated well-supported let's face it big voice mm. And if he's excited by that, then he'll make a lot of allowances for the other stuff. The fact is, Deutsche Oper is a big house. So you have to have the right size of voice to do well in that environment. If you've got a smaller voice, you might be better off in a smaller house. But do you agree with that, Chris? Absolutely. I, admit, I lost you at the beginning, but I think you were saying about the, the sizes of the houses and where you, where you place yourself. And the size of the voice. Absolutely, how they meld. That's right. I mean, one of the great things about having 
a country which has almost 100 opera houses is that you can start off if you are, particularly if you are in a heavier Thach, but younger. So Jugendlich Dramatisch would be the um, designation in German. Um, then, yes, you, you try your lecturers and your Isolders in smaller theatres. That is a time-honoured way. Mm-hmm. Um, that is something where, uh, if we can touch briefly on another, another big topic, which is Brexit, um, that's mm-hmm. a huge disadvantage because the bigger houses, the Deutsche Orbis of this world, Brexit doesn't matter. You know, we have HR people. Mm-hmm. We have singers from the States and Australia all the time. So that's not a problem. It's the smaller houses where you're going to have more of a problem getting on the ladder because they don't have the HR capacity necessarily. Um, I don't want to sound too negative, but I really, really don't see a, uh, a, a positive at that level where you're, you're the younger singer trying out a role. So um, come over would be my, would be my broad advice. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Size of voice. Deutsche is an enormous auditorium, absolutely gigantic. But it's also made of a wonderful... That's a fabulous wood. auditorium. Yeah. A wonderful resonant wood, which you're not allowed to chop down anymore. Um, so, <laughs> so you might as well use it. Absolutely, yeah. And so, you know, if you're producing your voice well, it's about voice production. It's not about, I'm sure you'd agree with this, James, loudness is not about decibels. It's not about, you know, if I'm, you know, uh, six foot five and just as wide, I'm going to be a bigger voice than someone who is much smaller. No, if you use your voice, all of your voice, if you use it efficiently and you have the basics in place, which is an interesting point, actually. I'm going to come back to you, if I may, mm. about the people I coach, the freelancers I coach. Anyway, you have the basics in place, then you will be able to project the opera house. You know, people who design opera houses are not idiots. I mean, you know, this is a, um, a space built for resonance. You've just mm. got to provide it. And that takes years of training, doesn't it? And, and, it and does. proper proper training. That's it. So I'll just drop in my, my little um, extra point now. Um, so I'm really thrilled to be in Berlin because you have a lot of singers working on a freelance basis. And the vast majority of singers I coach are in that uh, difficult career phase of the late 20s, early 30s. Um, and they have maybe established themselves to a small degree. They've been to a, a young artist program. They've done a couple of small roles here and there, but they're obviously wanting to push on. Um, and what I find as a coach, having um, worked a little bit with you, James, and with, with Janice, and with the model that I'm sure that most of the listeners of this podcast are familiar with, is that it's, it's, that, it's that forgetting the basics, you know? They come to me expecting, should we say, polishing, you know? So, oh, just a little bit more of that double L and you'll, you'll have a career. Or, <laughs> oh, just a little bit more of that, um, of that uh, rhythm in, in yeah. Act 3 of Rigoletto and you'll have a career. A well, bit more actually, accent on that syllable, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Now, I'm not saying those things aren't important, because they are. But the, the biggest need, and I would say this especially for people who are trained in the, in the English-speaking world, the biggest need is not that. The biggest need is reconnecting with the roots of singing, recovering the joy of singing, frankly, because a lot of it, there's a lot of worry, a lot of stress involved in building a career. Let's be honest, that's going to be the case for any singer. A lot of worry and stress, particularly in this era we're in now. And, you know, somebody who communicates the joy of singing, even in a, a tragic role, you know, that's not the mm-hmm. point, the joy of singing, um, you know, is... 100% of the time going to be more interesting and exciting than someone who's who you where you can feel the tension and they're, going to, be yeah, but like, mm. and they're going to be singing better mm. too you know that's that's proven across a whole range of of fields you know both artistic and medical right so what I often say is you know I hope you don't mind but I'm going to make a couple of physical observations here and there look I'm a coach not a voice teacher so I set a limit I set myself a limit if you like I don't want to go beyond what I 
what I know I understand. But um, as I think Mike Pugh was saying on your podcast, of, um, you know, a couple of weeks ago, it is also our, our business, or should be our business as pianists and repetitors, to understand the instrument that we're trying to refine and 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 how it works and so on. So obviously, if there's a serious uh, sort of pathology at work, you know, I wouldn't dream of going in. However, I would say. Mm-hmm. As tactfully uh, uh, as I can, you know, it is my job as your coach, seeing as you are, if it's a private coaching, you know, giving me money for this, I want to give you the best value for money. And I want to say that there is, you know, an issue here and no amount of cross the T's, dot the I's type coaching is going to fix that. However, however, when you fix that, it's often the case, just a basic, uh, um, a basic virtue that's been forgotten or left to kind of atrophy for a few years, then you're going to be making a lot of progress very quickly. So it's not a council of despair. It's not saying that, you know, maybe in five years you might be able to start having a career. Mm-hmm. Because saying that to somebody who's 30-odd is not much use because they've got to put food on the table. They might have a family to provide for. I've never yet uh, said to a singer, you know, are you sure this is what you want to do with your life? Because I don't consider that I have enough experience to do that yet. But I do think in extremists, yeah, I mean, in, in, in a really extreme case, that is part of the job of a pianist and coach just to say not to not to forbid somebody from singing but just to say look if you've come this far you've, you would need to go further to, to have a professional career i know this because i worked professionals the whole time are you sure about these sacrifices because it's a sacrifice for anybody as you were saying before james the itinerant mm. life the lifestyle security and that doesn't go away when you become an ensemble by the way it's, it's just not, another, not another set of pressures isn't it yeah exactly yeah. just happens to be in the same building <laughs> that's it yeah no 100 so um yeah, it's 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 something I just love so much working working with the singer as as holistically as possible, and uh, you know we have a lot of fun. I mean, I think singers come to the you know someone like the Deutsche Orb, you know, I, I I coach in that building. I have this title of Studienleiter, and certain expectations of what the coaching will entail kind of come with that. And I hope that I um, disabuse them of those notions and and, and uh, inject a positivity and energy. And in the best sense, fun. You know, I, I don't mean fun like in a flippant way, but, you know, this, this joy of singing business. And then it's a virtuous circle, as you know, James. You know, mm-hmm. if, if there has been training there which has been forgotten, then um, once the physical clicks, then you feel a lot better about your singing, which frees up your body, which frees up your mind, you know. And your artistry, um, yeah. And it's all... And your artistry, that's it. I mean, we always say in the courses, you know, when we talk about the, the teaching model having... Um, a core to it, which is, you know, breathing and support, postural alignment, primal sound and emotional connection to the material. And often you can't fix things with resonance or articulation uh, or registration if you've not got that core in really good order. And if you want to be a professional opera singer, it's got to be second nature, hasn't it? You've not got time to think about it. You've not got time to think about it. But it is also, the the best singers are always the ones who go back to their teachers and the coaches that they trust and say can you just are we are we in full working order i'm feeling a bit more effort here than i should be um and uh you know can we just keep it under review so there's no i think a lot of singers think if i start talking to them about real fundamentals like you know support and and, and what is support and why aren't you supporting and what's the diamond doing and what's the belly ball doing they feel like oh i you know in, in themselves they feel oh i really should be beyond this why is he having to tell me this basic stuff not at all you've got to have the you've got to have the openness and the humility to say I'm going to keep going back. Like I, as a pianist, keep going back to my Chopin studies. And if I haven't practiced them for six months, then they're complete garbage at the beginning. And then uh, <laughs> I remember what my, what my teachers told me and I, and I, and I practice it in and then it gets better. I mean, it's just mm. part and parcel of a musician's life. And it's, 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 a, it's a sporting life, you know, especially for you guys, you singers. 
you know, it's a, it's an athletic business. Um, and, uh, you know, in the, in the sort of Russian lust for refinement, often they're not the physicality goes. And so quite a lot of what I try and help with or feel that that's what they need most is re-engaging with a real physicality. I was just exactly what I was going to say. It's finding, you know, we can often think about music in a very intellectual way, and quite rightly too. But it's finding that through these primal emotion, connect, emotional connections that fire the body up to sing, and that's what often what could get lost in, in singers. Absolutely, and I don't think that connection is encouraged in a conservatoire level. Enough. And then you're out trying to earn a living, and of course you're going to be stressed. You know, I mean, that's just bad luck. Well, what I what I would say is, from my own experience the more I've grasped this and the more I've tried to kind of um, uh, practice it in my, in my coaching practice, mm. I'm a much better pianist now as well. You know? mm. It's amazing how I, it links. Oh yeah. I apply all that stuff. I don't want to post, but I, mean, I apply all that stuff as best I can to my mm. piano playing what, what I'm doing. And, you know, just those, those notions also freedom of the physical versus the artistic, not versus the physical and the artistic mm. in mm. concert harmony. with each other, mm. in harmony with each other. And, um, Oh, it gives you such freedom as an artist and a musician, you know? Yeah. And it's uh, so interesting, and we've talked about this a few times already, but it's often people say, oh, that, that person's got a great voice, but they're not very musical. But it's actually because they haven't been through the technical develop development stage enough to be able to be artistic and to be able to communicate. And actually, they're not going to get there unless some of those preliminary technical things have been addressed. It's absolutely right. And, and, you know, that's a complete false dichotomy. They've got a great voice, but they're not musical. What on earth does that mean? That mean? It's I mean, awful, isn't it? I yeah. hate it. One of, my, one of my great heroes is Buzzoni, and I think it was him who said that an instrument is musical, not a person. Um, <laughs> so, you know, the, the musicality is obviously a summation of, of, of all those things, and they're always in tension. That's what's so great about it. And what can be a real fear is, you know, you, you wake up as a singer on a Thursday morning, is my voice in, in full working order? Or is it not? I don't know. I don't know. And I don't know why. Maybe I've got an allergy. I'm not sure. Now, of course, people get allergies. But um, to be, to have that level I'm of... tired is the often, often the one. Exactly. To have that level of, of, of control, self-knowledge, doesn't mean you have a perfect voice every day, obviously. Who does? But um, mm. uh, that level of self-knowledge, it's it gives you such power and it saves so much emotional energy and time, mm. probably, because you practice less but more efficiently. Um, that's Absolutely. what I do now as a pianist because of pressures of life you know I practice less but I I think I practice more efficiently and uh, just being really really keen to learn not coming into a coaching thinking I want to show this guy how much I know but being in this open book and saying okay what can I add and listen there are some coaches who will give vocal advice which is not helpful for the singer at that time then it's the task of the singer to filter through what's what's useful and what isn't and that you know obviously if, if a singer doesn't have really good training in the background to be able to recognize that that can be a real problem, which is why I'm very, I've been very cautious, very incremental with how I've started uh, to address technical issues in coaching. And I'm sure Mike Pugh would back me up on that. Um, mm. You know, to say that you, 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 you go with what you know that you know, yeah? Mm. Um, and uh, when, you, when you know there's something that's amiss, uh, and, but you, you don't have the skills yourself to sort it out, you say, well, I think it might be time to just check in with your teacher again. Mm. And I mean, you know, the other thing is that, you know, we can't hear ourselves as singers, you know, we really can't hear ourselves in the way that other people hear us. And 
generally when you go to your teacher they will have an agenda of course hopefully of helping you and 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 sending you away on your incremental studies to get better but when you go and see somebody like chris you know his ears are incredibly valuable because he has the whole industry perspective and hearing all these singers every day in all these different productions from all over the world i would go to chris and i really trust his ears to say is this role in good order is the language in good order is the music in good order am i ready to take this to a rehearsal room with a with a great conductor and you know it's important that you find those people in your life i think absolutely i couldn't agree more and what i always want to do is empower a singer you know mm. i don't want them to to sing a role a great role like you might sing james in one day is um mm. exactly as i think it goes i want mm. you to have the courage of your convictions and the full color palette to choose what colors you want to paint with and mm. you, you you might want to paint differently on a tuesday than you do on a thursday you understand? It's, a, mm. it's, it's not mm. a fixed thing, and nor should it be. And I think, I think any good teaching coaching is about that empowerment. Because then when a, when a great conductor, when you are before a great conductor, they want pushback. They want, they want your ideas. Mm. You know? They don't want a robot in front of them. They want to no. often do some fine things together. And if they, exactly. And if, if they have a blueprint to which you must conform 100%. They are not great conductors. And that's so important. And that's the difference often between a really productive rehearsal room where everybody feels valued and is discovering a piece together. And often the results can be fantastic to one where if you feel like all you're doing is trying to imitate somebody's idea of a piece of music that's actually not your idea can be very shackling for you. It absolutely can. And, you know, um, human nature being imperfect as it is, that does happen from time to time. Mm. Um, but, but when various power power plays are at play in the industry, that's um, regrettable. One of those things that you have to, as an artist, you just say, okay, this is what's happening. I'm going to try and keep my integrity as best I possibly can, show mm. forth my ideas as best I possibly can, and remember those basics and be really in love with the basics. You know, Basics are not something, I'm sure you'd agree with this, James, basics are not something that you learn in order to leave behind. No. Um, they're something that you absolutely keep going back to and to, um, remember a, a, a piano teacher of mine when I was a teenager, I, I playing a piece, I thought, oh, I hate this bit. And he said, you have to find a way to look forward to it. I thought at the time, what a ridiculous thing to say, but that, I think it's a fantastic piece of advice and I, I still use it uh, 20 years on. You know? um, so important. Yeah. Then, of course, it's about finding the right people and it's about finding, yeah, those people that you trust. And uh, all I can say is, James, that, you know, you and I were students together roommates together at the time when you were finding if, if you don't mind me saying of course yeah. um when when you were finding your um uh well firstly finding life very difficult and then finding your your voice in the literal sense as well as mm. in the artistic sense and it was great to watch and um it was all based on uh what you now teach and promulgate and janice as well so it, mm. you know I, I say this to people quite you know I'm, i am partisan i believe in this stuff because it really works and i've seen it before my own eyes i've seen it you know mm. I've seen it work. Um, so these things are for me non-negotiable. And listen, if, if a singer comes to me and they're not in the place to take that on board, no hard feelings. We just uh, mm. part ways. Yeah. We're, we're not compatible. We part ways. Yeah. Mm. That that very very rarely happens. And you know, it's it's important that singers stay stay open and we, we always say growth mindset always you know you, if yeah. you have a fixed mindset you're not going to learn you're going to uh, get yourself tie yourself in knots the whole time and as soon as you open things out experiment and, and open your mind to new possibilities and new ways of doing things that's when you start to develop exactly and if you have the basics in place it can't hurt 
it's if it's if you don't have the basics in place that's when it can hurt yes and and, and, and get difficult which is why, again, check in on those basics. You know? And that's um, why it's always appropriate to have somebody whose ears you trust, either a coach yeah. or a conductor or, or preferably a singing teacher, that you do check in with every time you learn a new role or return to a role. <laughs> yeah. Sing it to somebody and just get somebody else's um, experience of how you're sounding. Are you being as efficient as you could be? Is there anything you can improve? I mean, it's just... Otherwise, again, and, 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 it's and, and how do you? Absolutely, I'm sure yeah. it's very lonely. But also, how do you feel singing a certain phrase oh i felt great you listen back to it straight away oh no but it sounded scratchy it sounded um, needs a bit it needs a bit know, of work yeah unformed. and then I, I i sing a phrase and to me it sounds a bit mousy and a bit scratchy and a bit unpleasant oh but wow on the recording it sounded fantastic yeah. never been never been easier to record yourself has it with the no. technology that we have and yeah. i suspect a lot of singers still don't do that and i really really encourage that yeah, record yourselves, record all of your lessons, record your coachings. You know, I've got some, I've got a whole library of fantastic recordings of co of coachings that I had with Chris, with David Cyrus, all these people, so that when I return to a role, I can go back and listen to those recordings again and, and, and then go and see them in person. But you build up this library of things that you can draw upon. And it's so easy to turn your iPhone, put, record something on your iPhone. It doesn't have to be a fancy bit of equipment uh, necessarily, but just to have all these things uh, as a record. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's that it's that bone conduction thing, isn't it? I mean, mm. when I listen, when I'm going to listen back to this podcast, I'll be horrified by how my voice sounds because I don't think that's how I sound. Yes. Right? I think everyone has that experience, and I and you were singing, it's it's to the nth degree that, and, uh, mm. you know, that's that is your wage. That's your bread and butter right there. Why wouldn't you? <laughs> And you, you've got to look after your sound. You've got to look after the thing that makes people want to employ you, which means you have to be in, you have to look after your technique. You have to be in fine fettle every time you open your mouth. Because in, in this business, especially um, if you're a freelancer, you often are judged on your last performance or your last audition. So yeah. get the help. The help's out there. You know, enjoy Absolutely. the fact that you can share this burden of, uh, of opera singing because it can be a burden. It can be a great joy as well. It often is. But, you know, one of the amazing things about, I always remember Janice saying, it takes a village to build an opera singer. So engage with your village of people so you don't feel alone and you don't feel that the task is insurmountable and that all these people can offer their expertise and help. Absolutely, absolutely. The the, the, the cagier singers, the ones who, you know, you slip a piece of advice in there and, there, and there's maybe a defensive response. Hmm. Look, it's, it's understandable. People are people. Uh, people go through different phases and so on. It's a real flag, you know. I remember talking to a singer who will remain nameless. Um, we had on stage Alessandro Corbelli, mm. magnificent Italian magnificent baritone. Italian baritone. And I spotted what I what I thought was some magnificent resonance tuning. You know, he was extremely neutral in the the draw no and so on. Yeah. Absolutely, but the, it was it was like you were being chatted to in this enormous auditorium. Um, by the way, Netrebko was in the same cast. I wasn't interested in her. I was interested in Corbelli because that's what he was doing. Um, and um, I, a singer, an ensemble singer who was um, in a supporting role, um, in my judgment, was engaging a bit too much jaw and mm. was uh, making his resonance kind of, so we say, a bit patchy as a result. Mm. And um, I said, uh, I, I got alongside him. He was sat next to me in the auditorium. I said, look at this guy. Look at the neutrality. Look at it. I didn't say anything beyond, isn't this guy amazing? And the comment comes straight back, what are you saying? Yeah. And I, and I said, well, I, I, you know, having had a bit of experience, I, I said, well, nothing. I'm saying nothing. Um, mm. Because, you know, if, if, if someone's that closed off, then they've missed the opportunity to um, not just to, to see a great artist and learn from them, but also via the coach who's, who's 
I've had a, a fair bit of experience to, to say this is this is what's working. This is why it's working. Uh, this is something you might like to go and tinker with um, in the in the rehearsal room. You know, if it was a one on one coaching, I would be more forthcoming yes. about it. But but you get a you know you get a real insight into the singer's um, openness or otherwise uh, when you get comments like that. You know, and basically all we want to do is geek off about how fantastic great singers singers yeah. are. And how fantastic it is. You've got to be a geek in the best sense. You've got to be a geek. To be in this business, absolutely. Thank you so much, Chris, for giving us a lot your precious time. And, you know, we'll see each other soon. And I hope you're well. And I wish Deutsche Oper well with with all of your projects. And I hope they get back as soon as possible. Thank you so much. And uh, greetings to all CBT people. I'm sorry I won't be able to see you myself either in person. But uh, um, you're onto a good thing here. And, um, (laughs) you know, this stuff... This stuff doesn't go away even at the highest professional level. You know, we're still talking about model-based stuff at Deutsche Oper Berlin, at the Vienna State Opera, in Bayreuth, in Salzburg. Trust me, because I'm there. That's that's what's happening. Okay, so so this this stuff is valid all the way through.